Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. When an entertaining nature video pops up on my social media feed, I'll save it to show my kids later. Um, But you know how the algorithms work. Oh, you like wild animal videos? What about this video of a wild animal accompanied by a human acting like an idiot? It's usually a Florida resident, not always. Uh, These are videos I don't save for my kids because it would give them nightmares for months, but the algorithm's got me now. So just this past week, I watched a man shoot paintballs at a bear that was hanging out in the crawl space under his house. Then I saw another man attempting to go viral by riding on the back of an alligator. And I saw a pastor holding up a live snake for a sermon illustration, uh, which the unappreciative snake responded to by biting him in the face mid-sermon. These videos always happen to feature men, by the way. Uh, Don't know what women are spending their time doing, if not this, but um, here's what I really don't know. Um, Have people always been idiots around hippos and tigers and snakes? Have people always been trying to box kangaroos? Or has this desire to go viral ramped up the idiocy in recent years? I don't know those stats. But I do know there are too many people getting too comfortable with deadly animals. Here's the parallel, I think, um, that is possible in this relatively secure corner of the world where we find ourselves, that you and I would start to take that same too comfortable approach to the dangerous sin of idolatry. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? should be somewhere around page 1016 if you're using one of the chairback Bibles. We're going to work through this whole chapter. The main theme in this chapter is idolatry, which is just worshiping something other than God. Some idols are made of wood and stone, historically. People pray to them, make sacrifices to them. Other idols are things like money and sex and power, which are good things that we make into ultimate things, effectively worshiping the gift rather than the giver of the gift. Consistently, throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, idolatry is treated as a serious offense against God. We're made by Him to worship Him alone. He took us as His bride in love. And so when we spread our affections around to the other objects of our desire, it's effectively marital unfaithfulness. It's cheating on the one who loved us with a perfect love. Hence, the urgency of the language in this passage is that we flee from idolatry. As we've been working through this letter we call 1 Corinthians, we've already seen the Apostle Paul make two parts of this five-part argument against eating food sacrificed to idols. In chapter 8, it was, hey, think about your weaker brother. In chapter 9, it was, hey, watch me and consider my example. Now today we see arguments three through five are all going to pop up in our text today. And these are arguments based on what we might call notification, participation, and edification. All of these are actually, as it turns out, super relevant to our own ethical choices, even though you and I may not be wrestling with whether or not to eat food sacrificed to idols. There's plenty of other things that fall in this category for us. So let's jump in. First, notification. 
lesson from the past, uh, we continue to see, as we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians, that Paul is affectionate. He's tender. He's patient with this dysfunctional church. You see him start out, hey, brothers and sisters, he starts this section. And this pastoral patience might be, at least in part, because he understands it's it only recently that these Christians in Corinth, they had zero understanding of any of this stuff that he's talking about. Right? Corinth was known around the Roman Empire for being another level of wild. Right? So that's, that's the world that the readers of this letter were raised in before they came to know Christ. And now they've found themselves, since meeting Christ, thrust into a story without any idea of where they fall in the middle of the plot. They're mid-story. They don't know what's happened before they stepped on the stage to play their part. And so in these first 13 verses, Paul is like, hey, let me remind you all of what happened before you showed up on the scene. So follow along as I read. I'll pause here and there to supply some context. He says, now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, pause there, our ancestors, Paul's Jewish. Most of his readers here are Greek. But Paul's training them, even in this language, our ancestors, to think in terms of continuity with a story of their spiritual ancestors who went before them in worship of the one true God. And Paul's about to retell the Exodus story, stopping to emphasize key moments in the narrative. Our ancestors, he says, were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Paul here is helping the Corinthians see, hey, in many ways, your Jewish ancestors spoken of in Torah, they were just like you. Sure, you were baptized and you take communion. But didn't they too? Sure, you know that Jesus is the Messiah. But wasn't he there with them, spiritually speaking, as well? So, Corinthians, if you're thinking, we have nothing to worry about. We're saved. Remember, the Israelites were saved, too, in a sense. If you think, we have nothing to worry about. We're, we got baptized and take communion. Remember, the Israelites passed through the waters from death to life, too. They ate divinely provided food from heaven and drank divinely provided drink from a rock. And even if you think... Hey, we have nothing to worry about. We know Jesus the Messiah. Remember, he was also there with the Israelites, spiritually nourishing them. In other words, Corinthians, you're not the first to experience God's saving benefits, Paul's saying. Now, we might say, hey, Paul, we get your point, but it seems like a bit of a stretch when you say the rock that they drank from was Christ. But if you look it up, you'll find that the rabbis, Jewish rabbis, point, like to point out, hey, notice at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, our people drink from the rock, and at the end of the wilderness wanderings, they drink from a rock. The rock must have followed them. And so Paul latches on to that observation and says, well, hey, if the rock was following them, that rock was Christ. He's the one who upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. He was the one whose spiritual presence went with the people of Israel, sustaining them along the way, even though they didn't know who he was yet. So the Corinthians may have felt, when reading this, what we feel when we're reading it, like, wow, I didn't know that the people of Israel experienced so much of what we experience as Christians. But that's when Paul takes this hard right turn, verse 5. Uh, 
He says, yeah, but most of their bodies ended up strewn across the desert. Check it out. It says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. We see what Paul's saying. That just because we've been saved and experienced grace and even enjoyed baptism and communion doesn't mean we're immune to being struck down by God. Now, what could Israel have done that could possibly be so bad that after saving them, God would strike them down? Paul's about to reference four stories from the Exodus journey in Torah. Look what he says. He says, these things took place, things in, at the time of the Exodus, took place as examples for us. So we'll not desire evil things as they did. And then in verse 11 of our text, he says, these things happened to them as examples, and they're written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Which ought to make you and I do our daily reading each day, thinking, wait, God made sure that this scripture I'm reading today was written down for me. Sometimes, like in this case, he made sure it was written down for us so that we'd be warned. And by heeding the warning, we'd avoid destruction. So let's look at four of the ways that Israel messed it up on their way to the promised land. Paul's going to walk us through it. Verse 7, don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. Four of the ways that Israel messed up in the wilderness. First one was idolatry. This is the golden calf incident. It's relevant because part of what they were doing at the golden calf incident is literally eating idol food while worshiping a golden calf. Same situation that Paul's addressing in Corinth. And sexual immorality, often these two, idolatry and sexual immorality, go hand in hand in Scripture. People who swap out sexual partners tend to swap out gods and vice versa, which is what happens in Corinth, just as it happened back on the wilderness journey, uh, when 23,000 people died as a result of a plague that was brought on them by uh, uh, people sleeping with uh, foreign women. Then testing Christ. That's the attitude of, he's all talk. Is God really going to follow through on any of these warnings he keeps giving us? And then the grumbling. Ugh, we never have any meat to eat. It's just this bread. When are we going to get to eat meat again? Which seems similar to what the Corinthians were complaining to Paul about, using this, this rule about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Almost all the meat in town was sacrificed to idols at some point. Like, Paul, do you not want us to be able to eat any meat? So can you see here what a perfect set of stories that Paul has put together to illustrate what he's talking about? He's, it's spot on how close the parallels are to what happened in the Exodus wanderings and what happened in Corinth. Paul's able to be like, hey guys, we've already gone down this road. It didn't go well. Right? Don't repeat the mistake of our ancestors in Israel. These things happened to them as examples. They were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. And then he says, even when it looks like there's no good options, people of Corinth, there's always a path available that would keep you free from sin. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. In other words, it's going to be hard to live free from idolatry, but there will always be a way. 
So, to situate these 13 verses in their context, Paul has already said in chapter 8, consider the weaker brother. In other words, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's going to harm your brother. Then he said, hey, consider the way I'm living in chapter 9. Like, in other words, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's going it's to get in the way of reaching people. Now it's, hey, consider what happened to our ancestors. Like when they played around with this stuff that you guys are playing around with, it went really poorly for them. And that's a word for us, I think. It's easy for us to be lulled to sleep as if God is okay with being mocked. As if his acts of judgment are just fairy tales from the past. But he's not playing around. When his people mess around with other gods, he acts decisively and we need to be reminded of that. Especially when we find that we've gotten pretty deep as we do sometimes into crafting this Christian-ish North Shore existence in which we worship God two to three Sundays a month but worship all the things our neighbors worship the other 27, 28 days. Our ancestors were saved too when they played around like that. God wasn't having it. Yet, there's no way to miss all the imprints all over this passage we just read of Christ's deliverance. Right? The reminder that he's faithful. That he's always providing a way out. That he rescued Israel and that he has rescued us, right? That even in our imperfection, Christ's presence continues to go with us. All those hints of grace in that passage. Now moving on to verse 14, we go into participation. So if that was a notification from the past, this is an argument that deals with participation, how we fellowship with each other through food and drink. Before we read it, the majority interpretation of chapters 8 through 10 is that um, as, as someone said, it's not about menu, but venue. In other words, like, go ahead and eat meat sacrificed to idols. Just don't do it in the temple as part of a formal ritual to another god. And it's possible that that's what Paul's saying. But as I mentioned in chapters 8 and 9, I don't personally think so. I'm convinced of a minority view. Namely, that Paul's actually saying, hey, no matter the venue, don't eat food that's, that you know for sure has been sacrificed to idols. In other words, if you don't know whether it has or hasn't been sacrificed, eat it. It's just food. But if you do know, then everything we've seen, then think about your weaker brother. Then think about my example. Then think about what happened to the Israelites when they cozied up too close to idols. And then argument four in this section, that eating meat sacrificed to idols is participation with demons. And he doesn't say, you'll, we'll read it, but uh, he doesn't say it's demon participation only if you eat it in the temple. His argument here is that that's what it means to partake in that food and drink. So check it out. He starts with an analogy to Christian communion. Verse 14, so then my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He's pleading with them. I'm speaking to, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share in the one bread. So, we share in the body and blood of Christ. We'll do it today. <clears throat> and when we do, there's a sense in which we associate ourselves very intimately with Christ, and by extension, with each other. It's not going too far to say that we join ourselves to him by ingesting 
and as the company of those who have commonly joined ourselves to him by ingesting together, we now have become an identifiable unit, those who have partaken. It's not so different with Jewish rituals, Paul says. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? He's talking about the Jewish priests who eat the sacrifices after the worshipers all leave. When those priests eat those sacrifices, they're not just eating food, he said. They're participating in the altar. There's some sense of fellowship there, in other words, of union, as the animal has served as a substitute for me. The argument Paul's making then is, hey guys, if it's that way with Christian religious food, and if it's that way with Jewish religious food, isn't it that way with the pagan religious food that you guys are so intent on eating? Those who eat the food share in some way in the spiritual happenings represented by the sacrifice. Now, he's quick to say here, as he has said elsewhere, idle food is nothing. No big deal. What am I saying then? The food sacrifice to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. Firm no, right? Okay, but if no, then why does it matter, right? Well, it matters immensely because even though in a sense an idol is nothing, an idol food is nothing, in another sense, it's very much not nothing. An idol is a demon, and its food can connect you to the demonic. Look what he says. He says, no, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So wait, Paul, which is it? Is Artemis, use Artemis as an example, goddess Artemis, is she nothing because she's just a block of silver or marble? Or is Artemis a demon? Yes. It all depends on what Artemis means to you. Artemis doesn't possess some kind of magic with real power such that if meat gets sacrificed to her and then you eat the meat but you had no idea, now a demon takes up residence inside of you having gained entry through the meat. Artemis doesn't have that power. She's nothing. But if you're like, hey, Artemis, I know people partake of this meat to identify with you to take you into themselves. And knowing that, I still choose to eat. Now you're welcoming demonic association. Paul's like, if you know, don't do it. You're in danger of welcoming evil spirits. I don't want you to be participants with demons, he says. You can't sip from that cup and this one. Right? Pick a cup. You can't eat from that table and then this one. Pick a table. Or, he says, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? When Jesus and Artemis, or Jesus and Zeus, or Jesus and Apollo go toe-to-toe, it's not an even match, right? It's like N.T. Wright says, nobody in their right mind should doubt that in a trial of strength between the Messiah and the dark forces, the Messiah will come out best. But nobody in their right mind would want to become, in their own person, the battlefield on which that trial of strength will be acted out. If Paul believes idols to be demons, which he does... Like, yes, they're nothing, but also demons stand behind these idols and use them. Then that's just one more argument stacked on the others that we've seen in recent weeks to stay away from this meat sacrifice to idols. The Corinthians may not have been ready to hear that, this argument two, two chapters ago about the demonic, 
But after the groundwork he's laid in the past couple chapters, now that might be ready. Like, yes, it matters who's watching you eat. But regardless of whether or not anyone's watching, participating with demons in private is not any more acceptable than participating with demons around other people. So I think that with respect to the gods, so to speak, of our own day, it's reasonable to conclude the same. Three examples. Take take the massive North Shore industry of boosting our kids' test scores and resumes to get them into elite colleges at all costs. Some of us may think that participating in that North Shore cult of achievement is unwise. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us it may actually be demonic in some cases. Or the people who go beyond voting for a certain political candidate to worshiping that political candidate, praising even his faults, blindly following him wherever he leads. Some of us may think Trump worship is unwise. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that it may actually be demonic. Ooh, or this symbol of the spirit of our age that declares our right to live as though our bodies are our own, to use how we humans want to use them. Some of us may think, hey, flying the pride flag is probably unwise. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us it may actually be demonic. Friends, just like the Romans worshipped dozens of gods and goddesses, each empowered by demons, according to Paul. There are demons empowering many movements in our own day. These movements are taking our friends and neighbors captive. We need to make sure we're not complicit. I do not want you to be participants with demons, Paul says. We've got to flee from idolatry, in part for our own avoidance of demonic participation. Third and finally, edification prioritizing others good so to a church that's stuck on questions like what am I allowed to do what are my rights Uh, what are my freedoms Paul's like hey you've been asking the wrong questions Corinthians you keep saying everything is permissible that's one of their favorite things to bring up everything's permissible but you're thinking in the wrong categories Paul says in point of fact not everything is permissible Example, participating with demons, what he just talked about, not permissible. But beyond even those things that are inherently impermissible, other things become impermissible, according to Paul, if doing them will cause harm to others. So there's some overlap here with what we saw in chapter 8. Paul beautifully bookends the general principle at the front end and back end of this section we're looking at now. He says everything's permissible, in quotes, right, because that's what the Corinthians have said, but not everything's beneficial, Everything's permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. And then at the end of our passage, I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. These are summaries of this principle of edification. High-level, big-picture summaries. But then Paul can also zoom in on several concrete, detailed situations to help us understand how this works out in practice. So, verse 25. He says, eat everything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and everything is in it. So at the meat market, right, a place like Corinth, you can be sure in a place like Corinth that some of the meat there has been sacrificed to idols, 
right? There's no reasonable way of knowing which of it has or hasn't. In that case, Paul says, just eat it. You don't know if it has or hasn't. For all you know, it hasn't. Everything is God's. Don't be troubled by it. You're free to eat. Right? The earth is the Lord's, all that's in it. Another scenario, making it concrete. I so appreciate how concrete he gets with this. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So same idea, right? The person who invited you over didn't say anything about it, so eat it. No need to be that guy who sits down like, um, excuse me, can you walk me through the life of this filet from pasture to table? But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. This is different, right? Now your friend invites you over and says, hey, by the way, this was sacrificed to Artemis yesterday. In that case, you've got to put down the fork. Why? We might say, well, in the previous scenario, it was nothing, right? Who cares? It's just food. Eat it. So why all of a sudden, it's still nothing, right? Artemis is still nothing. Why is this different? While the general principle still stands, namely, say thank you and don't worry about it, Paul wants to make sure we understand that that general principle needs to be qualified in certain instances. Besides the whole participating with demons thing for your own sake, it's for the sake of this other person too. Like, don't harm them. And in our day, we assume the way that we would harm someone who had us over for dinner would be to offend them by not eating their food. Paul's saying, well, no, the way you could harm them would be to accidentally communicate that you affirm their sin of idolatry. Like, if you love them, don't communicate affirmation of their sin. He says, uh, I don't mean your own conscience, but the other person's. Why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized? Because it's something for which I give thanks. Like, if they see you eat this food, knowing that they just told you that it was sacrificed to Artemis, but you apparently don't think that's a big deal, you could mess up their conscience, either by making them think that that's okay or that Christians think it's okay. No, to Paul, even the smallest things we do matter immensely. That's why he says, next, whether you eat or drink, even things that small, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. We call this the principle of edification, right? Not just, is it okay for me to do this thing? But rather, is this choice going to build others up? It's a different threshold, different standard. And this is critical for our healthy relationships core value here at North Sub. Paul says, hey, uh, I live by this principle of edification. Imitate me in it. And by the way, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, this isn't a special Paul thing. It's what every elder and deacon and life group and growth group leader and parent and Sunday school teacher in this church should be able to say. Like, hey, I'm not perfect, but you do well to imitate the way I walk with Christ, including what I do when I realize I've blown it. Now, as we're imitating Paul in his living out of this edification principle, does that mean we make every decision based on what the people around us think we should do to keep all of them happy? It can't mean that, right? Reading this in light of what Paul says elsewhere about pleasing people, we can summarize it this way. 
It matters what people think, but not ultimately. Right? Pleasing people isn't all bad, like we sometimes say it is. But there are two kinds of people pleasing, right? If we're doing what people want to try to be liked and respected by them, that's seeking our own benefit. And it's wrong. If, on the other hand, we're wanting to remove any unnecessary obstacles standing between someone and the good news of Jesus, now that's for their benefit. And it's a good thing. Good sort of people-pleasing, right? And when we zoom out, that people-pleasing discussion serves to help us as two bigger-picture ditches are coming into focus, right? With respect to meat sacrifice to idols, to summarize the argument Paul's been making, I think it could be summarized this way. Hey, uh, there's a ditch over here that you know it was sacrificed, yet you partake. Don't do that, Paul says. If somebody tells you and you know for sure that it was sacrificed to idols, don't do it. On the flip side, search every, you search everything to make sure it wasn't sacrificed. You don't need to do that either. You don't need to do this giant exploration to make 100% sure that it was never sacrificed. It's just meat. It's just food. It's just, it belongs to the Lord. Rejoice, right, and partake. For the issues of our day, we might say that the road we're trying to walk is, hey, don't participate in something if you know it's idolatry. But you don't have to go searching everything in your life out to make sure that it's not idolatry. So our big idea today in light of that is this. Whenever we're aware of idolatry taking place around us, let's refuse to participate in it. Whenever we're aware of idolatry taking place around us, let's refuse to participate in it. Uh, Y'all, I hope we haven't gotten too comfortable with idolatry. That we are in a church that's poking that bear. I want to finish by reflecting uh, in a little more nuanced fashion on one way we might be tempted to flirt with idolatry a little too much. It's that rainbow situation we brought up earlier. I heard this application from another preacher, but I think it's a really good one. Somebody gives you hand-me-down clothes for your kids, including a shirt with a rainbow on it. No need to burn the shirt, right? The rainbow is good. It's from God. We can receive the rainbow with thanksgiving. We can put our kid in a rainbow shirt without thinking twice about it. But if somebody were to give you that shirt and say, I would love to see your kid wear this in support of the LGBTQ community. Now we can't wear it. And let me explain. Do we support the LGBTQ community? I certainly hope so in one sense. We'll always stand up for the rights of LGBTQ people as humans made in the image of God. They'll be welcome in our homes. We'll spend time in their homes. Just as Paul assumes that the people of Corinth will be cultivating deep friendships over meals with people who worship idols, we'd love to cultivate deep friendships with neighbors who identify as LGBTQ. But just as an unbeliever in the scenario we just read, who invites over a Christian and who says, here's some idol food, Christian. And the Christian eats it. That unbeliever is bound to interpret that Christian's eating in a certain way. Similarly, if you and I say, yes, I'll wear this rainbow in support of the LGBTQ community, that is bound to be interpreted, at least by some, as I affirm how you live. I support your choice to live as though you're the God of your own body. 
And so, both for our sake, to make sure we don't follow in Israel's error and participate with demons, and for the sake of the person who asked us to wear the rainbow shirt in this scenario, to make sure we don't damage their conscience, we can't wear the shirt when wearing it is explicitly framed as a gesture of LGBTQ support. You could probably think of other applications of this principle. How deeply do we need to dig into our investment portfolios to make sure we aren't holding any stock in any companies that do anything immoral? I'm not sure how deep we need to dig on that. But if my financial advisor comes to me and says, Tim, Pornhub stock is about to go through the roof. This is free money. Let's go in on a few shares. i got to say no way. Whenever we're aware of idolatry taking place around us, let's refuse to participate in it. Let's pray. Lord, we belong to you. We are not our own. And as such, we want our lives to be lived in joyful submission to you. Despite the fact that you've purchased us with the blood of your son, we are still prone to wander. We still run off to these idols. We still uh, drift into worshiping other things besides you. Make us aware when we're going down those roads and help us to turn uh, and reserve our worship for you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.